Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. The point of this uh, whole chapter is to bring comfort. That's how it ends. You see the final 
a little benediction in verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. The whole idea of talking to us through the text of this passage is to give us comfort. This is about comforting us. And that is really Paul's purpose all the way through his two letters to the Thessalonians. Go back to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians for a moment, and you will find there that at the end of uh, chapter 4, where he has talked about the rapture of the church, which is the next event, as we've learned on God's timetable, at, in anticipation of the fact that the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he is saying to them, as you look at the future, be comforted, because the next event is the Lord is going to descend from heaven. You're going to hear the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the bodies of dead believers whose spirits are with the Lord, their bodies will come out of the graves, and then we who are alive will be gathered to meet the Lord in the air and will always be with the Lord. That's the next event. That's not when he comes to earth in judgment. There's no judgment there at all. That's what we call the snatching of the church or the rapture of believers. This is, this is our hope. This is the next event that's going to happen uh, as far as the church of Jesus Christ is concerned. There are no signs. This is what we call an imminent event. It could happen at any time. The Lord comes, descends. We meet Him in the air. The bodies of the dead rise first and are joined to their spirits, which are already with the Lord, and then all of us are caught up and changed on the way to heaven, and He, he takes us to the marriage supper of the Lamb and to a time of rewards at His table. Be comforted. No matter what you hear people talking about, and there are a lot of doomsdayers running around, a lot of them. I, I am always amazed at how many people who purport to be sensible Christians are selling end-time food stuffs um, so that they can survive the tribulation. I got news for you. If you're a believer, you're not going to need to survive it. You're not going to be there. We're going to be taken out of this world. It's a great way to scare people and raise money on a false pretense. It's bad theology and it's deceptive, but those of us who know the Word of God know that we are waiting for the Lord not to judge the world, but to take us out of the world. He began 1 Thessalonians in the first chapter, did the Apostle Paul in verse 9, by saying that uh, the Thessalonians had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for Jesus to come. We're waiting for Him to come and gather us together with Him forever. And then at the end of chapter 2, He says essentially the same thing. Verse 19, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord at His coming? You are our glory and joy. The joy in ministry, the rejoicing in ministry is going to be the gathering together of the saints when they're caught up to be with the Lord. That is a wonderfully 
comforting reality. And even at the end of chapter 3, he says that he wants the Lord to establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all His holy ones. All of that puts hope and settled confidence and holiness as our comforting reality. And then in chapter 4, the rapture passage, verse 18, ends, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then in chapter 5, you have the day of the Lord. After the rapture comes the day of the Lord. The sequence is purposeful there. There is the gathering together to the Lord in the air. We're always with the Lord. We're comforted by that. Then on earth, when people, verse 3 of chapter 5, are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, like labor pain upon a woman with child, they will not escape. But not you, brethren. You're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're not going to be there. Believers are not going to be there. We're all the sons of light and the sons of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. Down to verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that is the very condition of believers at the rapture, we will live together with Him. Again, verse 11. Therefore, Comfort, same word exactly, comfort or encourage one another. Build up one another just as you are also doing. So that is the point of all that the Apostle Paul writes about the coming of Christ. The rapture and the day of the Lord for the believer to understand those things is to be comforted. And that's, as I said, how chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians verse 17 ends. There's another text that speaks to this, and I would just read it to you, Titus 2, 11 through 13. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation or deliverance or rescue, same word, to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. We're looking for Christ. I know we have all these doomsdayers saying judgment is coming, judgment is coming, but the Bible tells us Christ is coming. Christ is coming. There are people who think that the, um, the earth and uh, all of those who are in it are going to literally go out of existence because of some environmental disaster, some, some melting of ice caps or some destruction of ozone or pollution of water or... Uh, bacteria and viruses running wild over the face of the earth, and we're going to face that kind of doom. There are, there are people who are crying out on the political scene all the time that the most important issue we have to face is the effect of greenhouse gases and those kinds of things. But all of that notwithstanding, the future will, for believers, be very clear. Before judgment comes on the earth in the day of the Lord, believers will be snatched out. They're snatched out in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. The day of the Lord, horrific judgment is described in chapter 5. We will not be there. We will not be there. So we're looking for Christ. Uh, we don't need to live in fear. We need to live in comfort and hope and joy and love, realizing that the same God who created the universe sustains the universe, and He will consummate it according to the way that He has designed and He's laid it out for us. He's going to snatch believers out, 
And then is going to come judgment on the face of the earth in a time called the tribulation, the last half of which is called the great tribulation. It's all an explosion of satanic power and as well ends in an explosion of divine judgment with the return of Christ. And at that point, He will remake the earth and its environs. He will recreate the earth and its environs and set up His thousand-year kingdom at the end of which He'll literally destroy the entire universe and create a new heaven and a new earth, which is the eternal state. So as we look at the future, it's all in God's hands. It's all in God's hands. So walk on the grass, shoot a deer, spray your hair, go for it. Now, we have the answer to the future in the Word of God. Paul wants to write the Thessalonians about the the joy of this coming rapture. So look at verses 1 and 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, even our gathering together to Him. I want to talk to you about the rapture, he says. I want to talk to you about the rapture. That's what he means by the coming of our Lord Jesus who comes in the air and we gather up to Him and go to be with Him forever. And I want I want to write to you about this so that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. He doesn't want any believer to be disturbed about the future. We do not need to be disturbed about the divine plan for the future. We don't need to, to be disturbed by eschatological issues. We don't, we don't need to fear that, the last things, the end of human history. So Paul says to them, You don't need to be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, but they were. They had become disturbed. Now, why would you be disturbed if you had just been told that the Lord's going to deliver you from the wrath to come, and then after that, the day of the Lord will break out, and the day of the Lord, of course, is laid out uh, all through Scripture, Old Testament and New, as a time of great, massive judgment on the ungodly. Why would you be disturbed and lose your composure, be shaken, when, when you knew that the rapture was going to happen first? Well, apparently they had been shaken and disturbed by a spirit, verse 2, or a message or a letter as if from us. Some false teachers had come and, say, and basically pretended to represent some, some spirit, divine spirit, that they were going to give a message from heaven And uh, that message from heaven was affirmed by a letter from Paul. So they had put together this package of bad eschatology that the believers were headed for the day of the Lord. In fact, they told them they were in the day of the Lord, and that's how they explained the persecution that they were going through. So Paul has to correct them. He wants to write them about the rapture. He wants to comfort them in their persecution. He wants them to live in hope and joy and love. And so he needs to clarify this issue. Now, one thing is very obvious. It is unmistakably obvious, and we've touched on it a couple of times, obvious from all that Paul teaches, and that is this, that Paul expected believers to be snatched out of this world before the day of the Lord. That is a pre-judgment rapture or a pre-tribulation rapture. Someone had come along and was saying, No, you're in the day of the Lord, as if there were no rapture or as if the rapture had been postponed or they had missed it or something. Paul wants to solve their confusion because they thought they they were in the day of the Lord. A lot of people think that today. They're called post-tribbers. They think that the Lord's going to take His people out after 
the events of the tribulation and the day of the Lord. That's what the Thessalonians thought because of some deceivers who had come. So solving their confusion and allaying their fears and confronting their lack of composure and being disturbed, Paul clarifies for them that they have not missed the rapture and they are not in the day of the Lord. Not at all. Now, as we look at this text, I want to break it into some manageable points. And Paul simply says this. First of all, don't be deceived. We'll just say, we'll start with point one. Don't be deceived. Verse three, let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come, that is the day of the Lord, mentioned in verse 2, the day of the Lord, this, this consummate final judgment, the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness or the man of sin is revealed, the son of destruction. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Deception is creating anxiety. It's creating fear. Do not be deceived by bad theology. Let me tell you something. Bad eschatology is bad theology, and bad eschatology is deception. Bad eschatology is perhaps as common or more common than any other category of theology that gets misrepresented. It's a major effort of Satan to cause believers to live in fear because they think they're going to go through this day of the Lord experience, and so they live in fear, storing up like these doomsdayers to survive divine wrath. That is deception. Do not be deceived. Secondly, do not be forgetful. And we're reviewing for a minute. It will not come until the, unless the apostasy comes first, verse 3, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So the second point, don't be forgetful. Don't be forgetful. I was telling you these things while I was still with you. Don't you remember that? I told you the gathering of the saints comes first, the rapture, the catching away of believers, meeting the Lord in the air, going to heaven, and there is the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation. There is the rewards to the believers who have gathered around the Lord, and we will always be with the Lord. So we're out before the day of the Lord comes. I told you this. I told you about the rapture. I told you about the day of the Lord, the coming judgment. But I also told you that the day of the Lord would be marked by the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction dominating the world, and by an event he calls the apostasy. The apostasy. Paul says you can't be in the day of the Lord because the apostasy has to come first and the man of lawlessness has to be revealed, the son of destruction. That that has to be in place before the day of the Lord explodes in its full fury. That has not happened. Now, what does he mean, the apostasy? We talked about it already. I'll just give you a brief review. It is the apostasy. It literally means the defection. It is an event clearly and specifically identifiable by the descriptive the. It is the specific apostasy, the consummate act of rebellion, an event of final magnitude. To identify the event, we must identify the person connected to the event, 
the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. So you're not in the day of the Lord unless there has been the rise of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and in the middle of that period of time there will be this ultimate apostasy, this event that triggers the final explosion of divine wrath in the latter half of that day of the Lord tribulation. The Antichrist is going to do that act. You can see it very clearly. Look at verse 4. The apostasy involves the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and this is what he does. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is what the Antichrist will do in that period of time called the tribulation. He will enter the temple. He will desecrate the temple. He will blaspheme the temple. He will blaspheme the true God. This is all described back in Daniel as well as in the book of Revelation. It is even referred to by our Lord in Matthew 24, 15. This is what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. In that future time, that time when Antichrist has taken a rule over the world, he will go into the temple. He, at the beginning of the seven years, he will come with peace. He comes as a rider on a white horse in Revelation 6. No arrows, just a bow. It's a peaceful kind of conquering. He makes a pact, according to Daniel 9, with the nation Israel to protect Israel. He is a global leader. He is a world leader. And um, he looks like a world savior. He looks like a protector of Israel. And once his power is sealed and settled in the middle of that seven-year period, he commits the abomination of desolation. He turns on Israel, begins to slaughter Israel. All hell breaks loose. Hell belches out demons who have been bound since way back in Genesis. The earth is overrun by the forces of Satan. And Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God as if he is God. This is the ultimate blasphemy of the ultimate Antichrist. The Thessalonians cannot be in the day of the Lord. There is no great global leader. There is no one who has made a pact with Israel. And certainly there is no blasphemous apostasy by that man of lawlessness. You're not in the day of the Lord. So if you want to look hopefully and joyfully to Christ's return, don't be deceived by false teachers with bad eschatology. And don't be forgetful of what the Scripture says. And that's what I told you. Thirdly, don't be ignorant. This is a very important portion. Don't be ignorant. To be certain his readers are not ignorant of Antichrist, he does some very interesting things, does Paul. He gives us four features of the career of Antichrist. Four features. And it's really remarkable in its general sense and also as you kind of spread it out a little bit over these four points, and I'll show you what I mean. There are four features of the Antichrist career. Number one is his revelation. Let's look at verse 6. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. He's talking about his revelation. Use the word revealed there in verse 6. He used it of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, in verse 3. He will be revealed. He used it again in verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed. So there is a revelation. You could say there is an incarnation. There is an incarnation. He will be revealed, but not now. You know what restrains him now so that in his time 
he will be revealed. You know that he is being restrained now. How did they know that? Because Paul had taught them that when he was with them. Important information for them. The Antichrist had not come and could not come until his time because he was subject to that which restrains him now, holds him down, holds him back, suppresses him, kateko in the Greek. So you ask at this point, what, what is holding him back? What is restraining him? I, I would assume that um, Satan would have liked to have had the Antichrist here long ago. Perhaps he would have wanted the Antichrist to be some, some Caesar immediately after the career of Jesus Christ to, to come and do Satan's horrific work. But Satan was restrained. It didn't happen. Perhaps some great murderous conqueror through human history, but Satan could never do that because he was restrained from doing that. Perhaps Adolf Hitler uh, was Satan's next and most familiar effort, at least to us, to bring about a Satan-incarnated evil man to become the final Antichrist. But even he couldn't pull it off. He was restrained. Or any other of the kinds of people like Stalin or Hitler or anybody else who is a murderous leader. But they're all held back. It hasn't happened. We haven't seen Antichrist. We haven't seen a global leader who rules the world by peace, who makes a pact with Israel to be their protector, violates the pact, sets himself up as God in the temple of God. Something's holding this back. Something's preventing Satan from doing this. What is it? Some people think it's preaching the gospel. That Matthew 24, 14 says the gospel has to be preached, um, and then Christ will come. It has to be preached to the ends of the earth. So is it the preaching of the gospel that is holding Satan back? Some have suggested it is some kind of special binding of Satan. Well, Satan is bound in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, but he's obviously not bound now because he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Some people think it's the church because in Matthew 5, 13 and 14 says the church is to be salt and light. Well, salt and light uh, are not restraints. Salt is a preservation and light is the truth, the symbol of the truth and righteousness. So God in his people has preserved truth and righteousness in the world, but that's not the same as restraining evil. In fact, the Bible is clear that evil men are getting worse and worse, evil is escalating. So the church is, is obviously the greatest blessing in the world because there is the embodiment of gospel-saving truth. But the church can't be the restrainer. Some people have suggested, uh, based on Romans 13, that government is the restrainer. The government is restraining Satan. That's not true. There's no effort made on the part of the government to deal with supernatural entities at all. Some people think it's the principle of law and morality that's in the fabric of culture and in the human heart. Uh, some commentators years ago used to think it was the Roman Empire, but that isn't even around anymore. And Michael, the archangel, has been suggested uh, based on his work back in Daniel. But none of those really work because neither angels nor people whether individual people or people collectively, can stop Satan. We can't control Satan. 
Michael found that out as it's recorded in the ninth verse of Jude. They're all human efforts or angelic efforts. No human effort can restrain Satan. There's only one in the universe who can restrain Satan. Who is it? Keep it in mind, the devil is God's devil. He never goes beyond the boundaries that God permits. The power that holds back Satan from bringing the Antichrist in final apostasy is the Lord himself. So there's a power in operation that holds back Satan's plan. The man of sin cannot come until that restraining power is released. The Thessalonians knew that. So they should have known they were not in the day of the Lord because the Antichrist had not yet appeared. The reason for the restraint, back to the same verse, the reason for the restraint is so, verse 6 says, that in his time he may be revealed. In God's appointed time, Job 42, 2, when Job had learned his lesson, he said, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Isaiah 46, 10, my purpose, says God, will be accomplished. Not Satan, not demons, not human forces, not devilish plan or purpose can operate until God allows it. God's plan and God's power control everything. Evil will never pass beyond God's limits. He will be revealed in the time, His time, God has appointed. Now, this is very interesting because you remember Galatians 4.4 says that Christ came, and it says this way, when the fullness of time was come. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. There was in the plan of God a time for the incarnate Son of God to come. Jews had waited centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries, but He only came in God's appointed time. And so, God, as He ordained a time for His Son, the incarnate Son of God, to come, God has ordained a time for the appearing of the man in whom Satan lives. His appearing is set by God's plan. Now get the picture. Satan wants basically to copy Christ, to have a, a human being supernaturally empowered, his false Christ, pseudo-Christ, antichrist. But he will not come until God's time is fulfilled. Now look at verse 7. However, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That is not to say there isn't lawlessness. He is the man of lawlessness. He is the final, ultimate embodiment of lawlessness. That's just a long word for sin, rebellion against God. That man of sin, that man in whom Satan dwells, that man who is like 10,000 Hitlers, that man has not come. But lawlessness is already at work because, as John says in 1 John 4, 3, there are now 
many antichrists. And the spirit of antichrist is everywhere. Whoever denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, that is an antichrist. So antichrist lawlessness is everywhere. But the mystery of lawlessness, what is that? That's the unrevealed aspect of lawlessness. When you see the word mystery, we're not talking about Agatha Christie or something like that. Mysterion in the Greek means something hidden, not yet revealed. The gospel of the New Testament is, is, a, is the mystery in the sense that it wasn't fully revealed in the Old Testament. The rapture of the church is called a mystery. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. The believer as in Christ, that's a mystery revealed in the New Testament. Paul is a, an apostle of the mysteries, the things hidden in the past that are now revealed. The resurrection is a mystery that is now revealed. So the mystery, the, the, the hidden reality of the revelation of Antichrist has not yet come. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Lawlessness is unfolding all around us from 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men get worse and worse. That's been true since our, uh, our Lord's time, and that's why the Apostle Paul said it. Starting then, people get worse and worse and worse. So the mystery of lawlessness, that is to say the unfolding revelation of evil at a massive level. And by the way, evil grows fast and far. That's why by the time you get to 6th, 7th, and 8th chapter of Genesis, God had to destroy the whole entire world because evil was so rampant. Evil now is regenerated again. When the eight people came out of the ark, they were sinful, and evil has been basically spreading since they stepped on dry land. Wickedness, lies, hypocrisy, false doctrine, sins of every kind, all of it is operating now. And that's what he means in verse 7. It's everywhere. Antichrists are many, and they are everywhere. Lawlessness is everywhere. Only, verse 7, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. The Antichrist hasn't come yet. The spirit of Antichrist, yes, 1 John 2.18, already in operation. But the man who finally embodies that spirit in a consummate way and rules the entire world is not yet revealed. Because he who now restrains will do so until he is removed, taken out of the way. Ek mesu, taken out of the way is what it means. We face then the question, what is this power? Well, I just said it's divine, and the best, best answer as to who it is is the Holy Spirit. He's the divine one who strives with sinners in Genesis 6. He's the divine one who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. Until the Holy Spirit gets out of the way, the Antichrist cannot come. Now, that doesn't mean, please, that the Holy Spirit leaves the world. First of all, that's impossible because He's omniscient, omnipresent. He knows everything. He is everywhere. So He's not going to leave the world. Furthermore, there's going to be a massive revival during the seven-year tribulation. And Revelation says people will be converted, saved from every tongue, tribe, nation, people. Massive, innumerable, millions of people converted. The nation Israel converted 144,000 Jews. 12,000 from every tribe become the evangelists and preach the gospel. 
Nobody could believe, nobody could be regenerated, nobody could be born again if there weren't a Holy Spirit present because that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. So the work of salvation, sanctification, even the spread of the gospel is the work of the Spirit. So it doesn't mean that there's no Holy Spirit here. That would not be possible. What it does mean is that he stops the restraining work, holding back Satan. He's restraining Satan from sending Antichrist. But when the time comes, Antichrist will show up. He will show up at the beginning of the week, and as I said, like on a ride, riding on a white horse with a bow and no arrows, he conquers. It doesn't take long before all kinds of judgment breaks out. He becomes the covenanted protector of Israel. Daniel 9 says, signs a pact with Israel to protect them. Does the very opposite, blasphemes God, and goes after Israel to slaughter all the Jews he can. So the Holy Spirit is the one who deals with sin. He's restraining Satan from full, final lawlessness in the form of the ultimate Antichrist. This one who restrains is the Holy Spirit. The one he restrains is the Antichrist. The sense of this entire passage, just as we look at it, seems to be that Satan, while perfectly aware of the fact that he cannot become incarnate. He cannot become incarnate. Nevertheless, he would like to uh, imitate the second person of the Trinity in this respect as far as possible. The second person of the Trinity became a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan wants a man. He wants a man over whom he can have absolute and complete control. He wants a man who will perform his will as thoroughly as Jesus performed his Father's will. But as yet, the devil is frustrated in his attempt to put his plan into operation because he is being held back, held back by the Holy Spirit until the divinely decreed moment when the restrainer, verse 7, is taken out of the way. As soon as that happens, verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed. Then that lawless one will be revealed. When the Holy Spirit steps aside and sets aside that restraining power, swiftly, fierce, fierce, Satanic work begins. It's described in Revelation 6 through 19, that whole section. And it begins with the lawless one being revealed, mentioned for the third time his revelation. Now, we've already seen his career previous weeks in Daniel and Revelation, so we're not going to go back and look at that. But just to grab Paul's words here, we start by looking at his revelation in God's time. Secondly, as we think of his career, is his destruction. Look at verse 8. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Just as the revelation of the Antichrist is set according to God's timetable, so is his destruction. His dominion will be remarkable. Daniel 7.26 says his dominion literally will be taken away, even though it's a global dominion, 
It will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Or in the language of Revelation 17.11, talking about the Antichrist, it basically says the beast goes to destruction. Or in the language of Daniel 11.45, he will come to his end. No one will help him. Now, the word slay could be translated overthrow or literally make an end of. It's, it's a broader thing than just death. It, it does encompass that. But it's the end of his entire dominion. Again, that's the language of Daniel 7. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then, in addition to that, to the end of his dominion will come the end of his life. And he will be brought to an end. That means destroyed. Abolished. Destroyed. He will kill the man after he overthrows his global dominion. How does he do that? By the word, the breath of his mouth. He speaks him into judgment. Satan's false Christ, a counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a parousia. He has a revelation like Jesus did, a revelation. He has a message for the world. It is a lie. It is deception. He can do powers and signs and wonders and even has a false resurrection. He has a massive impact on people. He is a supernatural person because the supernatural person is working through him. This is a false Christ with a false revelation, a false message, false supernatural power, false resurrection, and he comes to a quick end. When does it happen? Back to that same verse, verse 8. He is brought to an end by the appearance of His coming. His end is when Jesus shows up. This is a visible encounter with the glorious Lord Jesus who will paralyze the daring presumption and arrogant activity of this lawless one. This is so powerful a reality that I want to read you the description of it at the end of Revelation 19. Christ comes, heaven opens, a white horse. He who sits on it is faithful and true. He judges, wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head has many diadems. He has a name written which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. That's the breath of his mouth. On his robe and on his thigh, a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. I saw an angel standing on the sun, says John in the vision, crying to all the birds of heaven, come assemble to the great supper of God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, the small and great. This is the final judgment of sinners on this earth. And I saw the, the Antichrist and the kings of the earth 
And the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The Antichrist is going to try to make war on the returning Christ. And the beast, the Antichrist, was seized with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. There's not an actual sword out of his mouth, but his very breath kills. The Lord literally kills the ungodly, kills the Antichrist, the false prophet, sends them all to hell. So you see his revelation and you see his destruction. The third thing you see about Antichrist here is his power when he is functioning, verse 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Activity is the word energeia from which we get energy or power. What he does, he does in the power of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. He operates in satanic power. He does power, signs, and wonders. Power dunamis. Supernatural actions, signs, semea, which basically means it's a sign. This power act is a sign pointing to his supernatural nature and produces wonder, astonishing results. So this Antichrist will do some astonishing things. Mighty acts, I don't think we can simply say that they're fake. All the forces of hell, supernatural forces, can do Amazing things, supernatural things, like the magicians of Pharaoh. By the way, all three of those words, power, signs, and wonders, marked the ministry of Jesus Christ. So here's the false Christ. He has his own revelation. He has his own message. He has his own signs. Has, one of those signs is a false resurrection. Satan's power is limited, but it is supernatural. And he uses it for his works. Read 13th chapter of Revelation, and you can see what he does. They're false, not in the sense that they're not supernatural, but in the sense that they support a lie. They're false in the sense that they support a lie. When it says at the end of verse 9, with false wonders, that explains what it means in verse 10, and with all the deception of wickedness, all deceptive wickedness, it's a lie. Everything that he does is a lie. And at the same time, remember, he sets himself up in the temple as God. And the world believes he's God. And the world takes its, his mark. His whole operation is a lie, false, deceptive, luring people to believe that the Antichrist is Christ, that the power behind the Antichrist is God, that Antichrist is God's man, that he is the world's savior, that he is the one who should be worshipped. And every hellish supernatural ploy Satan has will be used to achieve that deception. And finally, a word about his influence. Verse 10. We saw his revelation, his destruction, his power, his influence. All of this deception of wickedness is for those who perish because they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Antichrist's malevolent influence will be on all those who are perishing. Those who are perishing is a category. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, 
the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, those who are on their way to hell, the unregenerate, the ones who believe lies, the children of Satan, John 8. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you don't believe me because you're of your father, the devil, who's a liar from the beginning, and you believe lies. This is the group of people who have succumbed to Satan's deception. The entire world, with the exception of those who have believed the gospel, are under his influence. And why are they under his influence? Because they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That, that phrase, the love of the truth, is so wonderful. They didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They heard the truth. The truth will be preached in, during the time of the reign of Antichrist. It will be preached in heaven by flying angels. It will be preached by 144,000 Jews. It will be preached in Jerusalem by the two witnesses who, who are killed. It will be preached to, to the ends of the earth. There will be people who hear the truth but don't love the truth so as to be saved. Just mark that, okay? Hearing the truth is not enough. Loving the truth, what does that mean? Preferring it above everything else. Loving the truth means you sell everything to buy the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. The love of the truth used only here. That's the phrase only here in all of Scripture. But here the gospel is at our hands. The truth of the gospel. They gave it no welcome. They gave it no love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But to those who did not believe, He brought judgment. Same John 3. They refused to repent. They refused to believe. They refused to follow. This is the condition of unbelief that loves sin loves not Christ. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. They choose not to believe. So they come under the full influence of Antichrist. And they are not saved. The results of this willful unbelief, look at verse 11. The results of this willful unbelief, for this reason... Because they do not love the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Because of willful unbelief and uh, rejection of the gospel, refusal to love and obey the truth that saves, there is a severe divine recompense. The people alive at that time who will not believe, who will not love the truth, God will send upon them, this is amazing, a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. That's a divine judgment. What a thought. The sovereign power of God acting to seal their eternal fate. This is like Pharaoh, right? Exodus 8 and 9, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. You harden your heart. That's your choice. God will harden your heart, sealing your eternal damnation. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his own sin. Judgment falls on that hardness, and God 
sends a deluding influence, a force of deception, a force of delusion, so that they believe the lie, the lie of Satan about Antichrist. So judgment comes in the form of an inability to see the truth, an inability to love the truth, an inability to be saved. And they are judicially sentenced by God to accept only Satan's lies. They will deliberately choose falsehood, and the time will come when they cannot choose anything but falsehood. Thus does God use Satan and the Antichrist as instruments to punish the perishing who have refused to love the truth. First Kings 22 talks about the Lord putting a deceiving spirit in the mouth of false prophets. First Chronicles 21 talks about Satan being used by God to move David to number Israel. God does not delude them into unbelief, but punishes them for willful unbelief by sealing their eternal destiny. Refusing the truth, they are turned over to damning lies. The sinner refuses light, chooses darkness. Darkness he shall have. He hardens his heart, hardened it shall be. He refuses to love the truth. He will, he will receive a lying spirit, and he will love lies. Spurns eternal life. He will have eternal death. In all ages, those who persist in sin will find eventually they won't be able to escape that choice. So perishing people hate, reject the saving gospel, refuse to love Christ, rather love sin, will not believe the truth, but believe lies, will not follow God, but follow Satan. Eventually, unless they repent, they will not have a choice. This is the Antichrist, and this is his career, and this is the future. But we're not looking for Antichrist, right? If you want to live in joy and love and hope, then you need to be looking for Christ who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you for your truth. We love your truth. You have opened our hearts to make that a reality. We thank you. We thank you that you have chosen us from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. We thank you that you called us through the gospel to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. We have no fear about the future. We have no fear about death. We have no fear about the future of what happens to this planet. It's all in your hands. You made it, you sustained it, and you'll bring it to its end. You gave us a detailed description of the creation. You've given us a chronicle of your sovereign working through all of human history. You've told us how it will all end in detail. The rapture, then the day of the Lord, and even during that period with horrific judgments coming on the earth, many will be saved. Then you return with those you raptured, 
set up your earthly kingdom, you remake the earth into an Eden-like paradise once again. You reign from Jerusalem with your people for a thousand years, after which you destroy the entire universe and create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever for you and your saints. This is pre-written history. Lord, what do we say to you of gratitude and thanksgiving for giving us this gift of forgiveness of sins and salvation and love of the truth? We have new life in Christ. We follow Christ, not Antichrist. We follow the one who is God incarnate, revealed in your time, who lived a perfect, sinless life, died a substitutionary death and rose again for the forgiveness and justification, salvation and glorification of his people. Thank you for the true Christ. May the glory of Christ be spread across the earth even now. May you gather in your people. And may you come to gather us to yourself soon. We're ready and eager. But not until you've gathered all those whom you love and for whom you died. Do that, Lord, for your glory, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. That was John MacArthur with the Antichrist Unleashed, and I want to talk about, I think John MacArthur is a very good teacher, but I have reasons to believe that he's wrong about creature Vasher. I go to another teacher, um, Netflix, of CARM, which is Christian Politics and Research Ministry, which is the GOM for like, I think over 30 years of Bible teaching, Bible studying. And this one says, there is great, there's a great deal of disagreement among Christians regarding the timing of rapture as it relates to tribulation period, which is commonly held to be seven, seven years long. Daniel 12, 1. Matthew 24, 15 through 31, and Revelation 7, 14. The disagreement disagreement is in regard to when the rapture will occur. Will it be before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? These basic differences of opinion each have subdivisions. However, the dispute is primarily among the pre-millennials who are looking forward to literal future 1,000 reign of Christ that is preceded by a seven-year tribulation. Well, I actually believe that there is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, but um, I think it's after tribulation. That's 
partially mean we'll sketch what and then it goes on to say the pre tribulation rapture view essentially provi- proposes two returns of Christ. One at the beginning of tribulation and gather saints and another return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. In order to set up the millennial kingdom and judge the wicked again, this view is primarily held among premillennials. The mid-tribulation view also proposes two returns of Christ, like pre-tribulation theory. It proposes a first secret return of Christ in the case of three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year tribulation. It also proposes a return of Christ at the end of the seven-year period. The post-tribulation rapture view proposes a single return of Christ where there is more or less a simultaneous return of Christ and a rapture of the saints. Finally, there is a rapture, partial rapture theory in which Christians who are living in a sanctified life will be raptured, but those who are not living a sanctified life, backsliders, will not be returned. Instead, they will go through the tribulation. And the one I believe is that they go through tribulation, but the um, the rapture that is first is actually of the wicked, and then it's the people who are dead in Christ and they're alive in Christ. And then it says, are the good or the wicked taken first when Jesus returns? This is another article, and it says most Christians, at least in America, teach that Christ's return to the Christians will be removed from the earth and the wicked will be judged. Some hold to a pre-tribulation rapture view. Seven years before the return of Christ, Christians are taken out of the world and wicked are left. In a post-tribulation view, the rapture occurs at the time of the Christ. At the time of Christ's return, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, some common verses use to support the idea that the good are the ones taken first are found in Matthew 24:40 and Luke 17:34-36, which say that there will be two men are in the field and. One is taken and one is a foot. When we analyze context to the verse, these verses, we see that it is not the good who are taken, instead of the wicked. Okay, and it says Matthew 24, 37 through 41, chapter, excuse me, um, verse 37 for Matthew 24. For coming of the Son of Man will be like, just like the days of Noah, and this is Luke 17:26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 38 for Matthew 24. For as the in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day of the, the day that Noah entered ark. Luke seventeen twenty seven 
they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they they were being given in marriage until the day of day that Noah entered the ark. Matthew twenty four thirty nine, and they did un, did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Luke seventeen twenty seven, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as it happened in the days a lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from the heaven and destroyed them all. And then it says, Matthew twenty four forty. They then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the millstone. One will be taken and one will be left. I tell, and then Luke 20, 17, 34 means, is, uh, I tell you on that night there will be two in the one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding and the this at the same place and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, another will be left. Then it says Matthew twenty four thirty seven And answering they said to him, Where Lord and he said, Where the body is the there are also the vultures will be gathered. And it says, as you can see, the ones who are destroyed in Luke 17:27 were the ones who are eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. The same phraseology in Matthew 24:38-39, where, where the ones who were taken, verse 39, were the ones who were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Matthew 24:38. So in context of those. Who are taken are the wicked, not the good. Therefore, these verses are not about the rapture, but which, which does happen and describe First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 4:16 through 5:2. In addition, the disciples asked Jesus where the they were are taken, and he answered them, "Where the body is, there also the vultures will be get." Luke 17:37. Those who are taken go to the place of judgment, a place of death. And let's see. And then um, he does the uh, parable. Says, but that's not all. Um, there's a whole lot more to this, um, but you can read the rest yourself at um, carm.org, C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and this one is called Are the Good or the Wicked Taken First When Jesus Returns? That's the name of the article, and an article that I got from before was called What is the Rapture? So you can look those up at carm.org. I see why I think that it's going to be the rapture is going to be at the end. And so then uh, Matt said he actually believes that there's 
um, I think it's called All Millennialism. But I believe there's going to be a literal, um, literal uh, 1,000-year reign of Christ. And let's see. So I played the other um, teaching with John Carter because um, he talks about Antichrist. Not because I really would preach in rapture, but it's good to know because uh, uh, the rapture teachings they are non-essential to to being a Christian. Like you can believe in each one and still be a Christian, or either one. I mean, and but it's still good to know. So I think that that's why. It's, it's talked about in the Bible because the, I believe that we will go go through the uh, rapture. I mean, the ones who are st- alive at that time, um, we don't know what it is, and that's why it's going to know the teaching of who the Antichrist is and what he does. Because I think that's why, because God wants us to know that it will happen uh, during. Some Christians life might be us, might be the future. I don't know, but it's always good to notice um, about the rapture teaching and um, and about what um, is going to happen. So please check those out at com dot org, c a r m dot o r g. One's called Are the Good or the Wicked Taken Us First When Jesus Turns, and then one's called What is Rapture? And let's see. Next, what I will do for you, I'm going to play something from Answers and Genesis. Here we go. Why are young people leaving the church? This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Ark Encounter, and Creation Museum. Did you know that over two-thirds of skeptics have attended church in the past? I've said for years there's a lack of apologetics teaching in churches and homes. And now, because millennials weren't taught to defend their faith, they've been drawn away by the world's scoffers. For my co-authored book, Already Gone, we asked over 1,020-somethings why they left the church. And a big reason was that they doubted the Bible. Now, apologetics doesn't ensure someone won't leave the faith, but we've been commanded to raise our children in the instruction of the Lord and defend the hope we profess. We need to be obedient in teaching generations and leaving the results to God. Discover more about apologetics and equipping others at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
From Jews to Greeks, this is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. We live in a Greekized culture. Well, let me explain. In the book of Acts, Peter preached to his fellow Jews a message starting with Christ as Messiah. Now, the Apostle Paul preached a sermon to a gathering of Greeks starting with God as Creator. Two different messages pointing to the same person, Jesus. Why the need for different approaches? Well, Peter was preaching to Jews who knew the Old Testament and the promised Messiah. Paul was preaching to pagans who knew nothing of God. And that's the culture we have today, even in the church, sadly. While past generations were Jews in the sense they had a biblical foundation, today they're Greeks. Explore how to share the gospel in our Greek eyes culture at AnswersRadio.com. Find thousands of resources and encouragement in your faith when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. God, the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest roof. Christ brought us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch hats from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambition. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and laid out his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, put the gate is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night and his fright in the might and diamond in mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the loss that he found, though, he was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the clown. Yo, Satan had a trick hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dopin' in. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end, that's what we hoping in. Ripping on it's spell check, the risen king can rinse clean The most rebellious, I was hellbound Now I'm spellbound, word is born I'm a bond servant to the word of life uh, Call me a sellout, I was bought with a price We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust We will rise up just like the one who justified us It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care the God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence. Prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the fiber of cosmology. The abba of astronomy. He's potter. We are pottery. It's shocking. Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrection. Bodily apocalyptic 
prophecy He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery That don't acknowledge him properly You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment Study the development from Old to New Testament You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age It's relevant, crisis on its center stage Forget religious sentiments that center on man But something less is what you're settling He is the most excellent, exercising benevolence And blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated That severed the relations between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross And compensated his life, death, and resurrection Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all Freedom from the effects of the fall Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden And from the law So the saints stand and applaud His grace and glorious cause With hands raised, praising his name Singing glory to God <laughs> Reaching Greeks with the Gospel. This is Ken Ham, encouraging churches to start their thinking with God's Word. Yesterday we learned that our culture is like the Greeks the Apostle Paul preached to in Acts. They don't have a biblical foundation, even some who used to go to church. So how can we reach them? Well, we need to do what Paul did when he was teaching the Greeks, start with God as Creator. We can't just assume people know God as Creator or that they understand man's sin nature. Without Genesis in the Old Testament, the message of the Gospel just doesn't make sense. Why do we sin? Why do we need a Saviour? Why is death our deserved penalty? All of these questions are answered in the Old Testament. And to reach people effectively with the Gospel, we need to start in Genesis. Get equipped to answer the skeptical questions of our day with thousands of free articles at AnswersRadio.com and learn about our ARC Encounter attraction at AnswersRadio.com. And this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable 
thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You said Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still, you pursue relentlessly. At times, I wonder how this can be. Surely, it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So, even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever, this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change, forever you reign, you remain the same, you will never change, you will never change, immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. That's shining with immutable, oh, sorry, I think I had that. A voice thing on. I was playing something background. Sorry about that. Um, and let's see. Um, that was Immutable, the song. And let's see. That was by Shylin. And that was. You can find him on Lampmode.com. L A M P M O D E dot C M. com. Let's see. Uh, now I'm going to play. This is from Extra Metamorphosis, a testament to the Creator. This is Ken Ham, and we produced a very popular vacation Bible school program for the summer. Have you ever marveled at the way a fat caterpillar transforms into a delicate butterfly? This metamorphosis has probably astounded people since creation. But how is it possible? Well, it's a very complicated process. But ultimately, it's possible because the instructions for each stage of the life cycle are present in its DNA. For example, 
skin cells have instructions for caterpillar skin in larval, pupa and adult forms. All it needs is chemical signatures to tell it which stage the caterpillar is in. Romans chapter 1 says that those who reject the Creator are without excuse. That's because it's so obvious there's a Creator. Discover more about God's amazing creation when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or share it with others at AnswersRadio.com.
that was by Jesus of the Goldfish, and now we have Shylin with Starling Mystery here on Truthy Tolery.
Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? His death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary Took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel is not fake news Our dead is sin, the gospel Sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed Let us in We got the medicine It's still human emergency The serpent attack You think Jesus can't save That's alternative facts Stand up Stand up If you truly love the son of man Trust Jesus is alive And his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up Stand up Does anybody love the son of man? Trust Jesus is the king So his people we will sing And forever say worthy is the to my composition Lots of rhythm But not traditional Kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition Through crucifixion He mocked and crippled His opposition It's not some fiction I'm spitting The son of God is risen And my incentive For godly living Is I'm forgiven Jesus came to unlock the prison And through the spirit He brings a new birth Like an obstetrician At times I listen A lot of Christian Hip-hop is missing The proper vision It's my suspicion We drop the mission Not to this But the word of God Is it not sufficient The doctrine is That the gospel fixes Our shock Condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition Stand up, hands up If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hands up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate and relegate him. We refuse it. They hate Christian hip hop. I peep myself. They say we too redundant. Well, let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property. I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no synonym. Again, he came. Straight blameless, no synonym Again, nothing's been the same since No synonym, again, fakers lack his fragrance No synonym, this is not the picture in a frame To still Jesus, nah, we serve the, the rock, rock The harder than still Jesus So how we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus When the world and its trends pass away It's still Jesus Stand up, hands up If you truly love the son of man Trust, Jesus is alive And his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up, stand Son of man, trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up?
Bam. What's up? I for a pause. I had to turn something off on my, on my computer. Let's see. Um, I'm going to say right now this is from Wretched called God Uses Sin Sinlessly. You know, two feet over In an effort to reach millennials, we want to understand millennials. John Fabaris giving us millennial distinctive number five. What other distinctives can we learn about with this next generation? I think one of the hard parts that just young people struggle to get their minds around is a problem that everybody's had. It's just the problem of evil. It's the problem of how can a good God oh, let that so some of the big questions. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons for that is because of the exposure that they have, not to the you know necessarily bad, crude things, but to the things that are just natural disasters and people dying. And sure. you, know, you could YouTube some really bad things and be able to see it. And because that evil is so pervasive and everybody can see it, Right? It's not like it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you didn't know if some terrible you know, landslide happened in, in Taiwan last week because you didn't see all the Snapchats and you didn't see all the pictures of it, but now you do. And because of that, just people, young people, students, are just consumed with that, and it's hard. And we need to be teaching them. It's, look, dealing, dealing with theodicy is not an easy subject never for is. theologians, but no. nevertheless, we do have an explanation for it, and we should be sharing it with our kids, because otherwise, why do we all this evil? There can't be a God, is the conclusion. Ephesians 2 and verse 7, why are we saved by grace alone through faith alone, which is what Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 is about because of verse 7. So that in the ages to come, God might demonstrate the richness of his kindness toward us in Christ. In other words, God uses that which he hates, sin and evil, to accomplish that which he loves, putting on display the attribute of kindness, the attribute of mercy, the attribute of grace. In other words, God uses sin sinlessly to accomplish a greater good. Can our brains grasp that? I don't think fully because we're not God. But God has a different set of priorities than we do. We like to think peace, comfort, full stomachs, that's the most important thing. God says, oh, those things are needed. But the most important thing is I am seen as the magnificent God I am so that you can enjoy me for all of eternity. Oh, I am so surprised that you are still here. Apparently, you've got a lot of free time. If you would like to get more Wretched, and who wouldn't, simply like this video, subscribe to this channel, and we will give you Wretched till it's coming out of your nose. That was from Wretched, um, their, like I said, their YouTube channel. You can um, go to W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D on 
YouTube and also um, their website, wretched.org. That's wretched.org. And thanks for listening to Retail Radio. We're just about done. I'm going to go out with Young and Friends with the Viability. Until next time, bye for now. The B-